Hey folks, before Ryan and I get going on a Premier League-specific season review episode of the Total Soccer Show, that was quite a mouthful that I wasn't really ready for when I started that sentence, I did want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by The Athletic. Do not miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season and the ones to come. They too will be unprecedented because they too are going to be strange. You can subscribe now and save and get unlimited access to breaking news, in-depth stories, and expert analysis from many different sports or just soccer if you want to stay focused on soccer. Either is fine. So sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash total soccer, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. Sports are back and you won't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite teams. So go to theathletic.com slash total soccer for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. Everybody and welcome to a season review episode of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Join me is a man who's ready to look back on all things that have been. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tete. Much like Noel Gallagher, I don't look back in anger. No, just just in fondness and wistfulness and sadness. Fondness of the 352 days of this here Premier League wow. season. That was a long one, wasn't it? Can you wow. remember the start? No, I really can't. There's so much stuff that I've completely forgotten and had to, when reading other people's reviews and lookbacks and retrospectives, I was like, oh, right, that was this season. It does yeah. feel like it was a year ago because it was. I had not done that, <laughs> that legwork, that math. Well done, Ryan. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was just thinking back when I was looking through, through the season, it started off with that Man United-Chelsea game, the 4-0 game. I was like, wow, that was this season. That was when we thought Frank Lampard was a terrible wow. decision for coach, and we can get into that a bit later on. Yeah, I, I suppose we shall, because we each have 10 or so like takeaways from this season, from the 2019-2020 Premier League season. My guess is that we don't end up having 20 total, because there's going to be a decent amount of overlap. Uh, Ryan, I will let you start. What is one of your big takeaways from this past Premier League season? I will start with one of my 10 takeaways. I'll be furious if you, if you take away one of my 10 from the total, Never. by the way. Never. Good. All right. Wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> Let's start off uh, near the top of the table, not the very top, near the top, Manchester mm. City. They faltered, as we know, Tete. It was Pep Guardiola's fault, but not because of anything that happened on the field necessarily, because of the way the squad was not set up correctly before the season started. They are, if you look at the betting odds right now, Taylor, 100% the favourites to win it next season, and I think they will as well. How, wait, just... how can you have 100% odds that they'll win it? They 100% are the favourites, I think, is the way I phrased it. Oh, okay, okay. So, we'll, we'll, so really, <laughs> so if you're looking at betting odds, they're, they're yeah. far and away ahead. I'm really surprised to hear that because Liverpool uh, were fairly convincing winners. So w- what do you think it is then that has people psyched about City next season? Folly and arrogance maybe won't be a part of <laughs> Pep Guardiola's recipe for 2021. Right. Um, you know... Th- This was a team that didn't get off to a good start. They lost five games by the time this year rolled around and they'd drawn two others. Lost to teams like uh, Norwich, Wolves, Liverpool, Man United, to be fair. But a lot of teams you might not expect them to have lost to. And this is something which I talked about a lot during this season, Taylor, but it had to do with the fact that their recruitment policy was off. When Americ Laporte went out for a long time, they didn't really have anyone that Pep had confidence in to put in at centre-back. They had people like Eric Garcia, who actually played uh, this weekend, but they 
Pep chose not to put his trust in the in the youth product. And we ended up in a situation where we had Fernandinho going into centre-back, which means that Fernandinho wasn't doing Fernandinho things. It did mean that Rodri could come in and do Rodri things, and we know that Rodri is the replacement for Fernandinho. Forgive me if I'm going too fast here. But basically, Pep's winning formula for last season, the season before this one, this 352-day season, was that it was a 4-3-3. You had Fernandinho in front of the back line. You had two decent defenders, John Stones notwithstanding. And that was the formula. They had to switch it up. Let's like they beat Norwich Taylor five 0 on the last day. They had a four three three. They had Laporte and they had Garcia partnering him in centre back, right? And then they had the Rodri and Fernandinho doing the covering role in front of them. Go back to the September game when those two teams met. It was Stones and Otamendi in centre backs, and it was four two three one with I think Gundu, probably Gundogan and Rodri in front of them. Mm. So a different system because they had the folly of not preparing in the previous summer this is we know that Pep Guardiola loves to buy a fullback he bought Angelino bought Jao Cancelo bought Rodri that was a good purchase admittedly didn't replace Vance on company who left and didn't buy the position which they needed cover in and I think they paid going even further back for not buying Virgil van Dijk because mm-hmm. probably the best player in the league sorry Kevin uh, for this season and um and sorry Danny Ings oh let's, let's get there later as well mm-hmm. um but but you know they they've not only been weaker for not getting a Virgil van Dijk but they strengthened their closest competitor by doing that so that was a big mistake and it just seemed like squad planning was not the forte for Pep Guardiola going into this season how's that all sound to you that all sounds pretty logical to me. Uh, I like. I think I would not be with you as much on the Fernandinho to center back spot because that's something that we've seen him do. We've seen Pep do both at Barcelona and uh, and at Bayern Munich. Mascherano, famously Yaya Torre. Uh, the the issue though that I think you you definitely hit upon and I think is maybe the biggest one is that when you move Fernandinho out, you no longer have Fernandinho doing the Fernandinho job. Instead, you have Rodri or somebody else. Uh, in many cases, Gundogan, and yeah, it's just a huge drop off. So I don't have as much issue with. Fernandinho going to center back as I do with Fernandinho then not being the Fernandinho guy, which is what you definitely need. I think you're definitely right there. I don't necessarily know how they fix that, though, because they're linked with a couple different people at center back. But I'm with you also that Vincent Company not being replaced both as a performer for that team, longstanding performer, but then also that kind of leader, that veteran figure. I don't know how you get somebody like that short of signing Virgil van Dyke. Is there a player you think they could especially do with? Or is it more about Pep sort of embracing other philosophies and sort of uh, diversifying his approach a bit more? Maybe a little bit of that, but I think it probably is more about recruitment. I don't have anyone off the top of my head, which I can immediately Mm -hmm. point to who is the boilerplate solution to this. But it does... It screams of needing a bit more cover at centre back, doesn't it? I think that's the, the, where this squad really needs some beefing yeah. up. The, the squad, the, the transfer window open today. It's open until October fifth, if I'm not mistaken, and I think it's actually open for another uh, week or two just for domestic transfers mm-hmm. this season. Fun fact for you there. But I have, I mean, for, for City to be number one in those odds, I think that really is dependent on them making some changes uh, personnel wise. It is. I also think that it's worth remembering that this is their, they were trying to, what, win three in a row, three league titles in a row this season. Obviously, they did not succeed, but it is 
notoriously challenging to repeat as champions because you don't have that chip on your shoulder. You don't have that feeling of, is this going to be our year? Are we finally going to make it happen? Are we going to get our trophy back? Whatever it might be. And Liverpool will have that pressure next season combined with the sort of the same squad. You wouldn't expect a massive amount of turnover there, a massive amount of reinvestment. So I'm with you that I think a hungry Manchester City with a rededicated Pep Guardiola who will not be moving to Barcelona, at least not next season. Uh, and maybe you bring in a few more players, you round up that depth. And I think there is much reason uh, to maybe throw in a, a, a bid or a, uh, a wager on uh, Man City winning the title next year. Don't bet on Jesse Lingard. We'll talk about that later. But any, <laughs> any other things you'd like to look back on or talk about from Man City's season? Because I don't have much to talk about when it comes to City. I'm happy to move on to the next topic, Tate. All right. Well, then I think I will take us to the team that bested Manchester City, uh, which I don't know if you know. It's Liverpool, right? I'm not sure if you were following along there. Oh, was um, that this season? It was. So oh. It was sort of like before the shutdown even happened. They were that close, <laughs> and they end up winning it in fairly short order. And to some extent, my big takeaway is that Liverpool winning the title so early has allowed us to forget about how good they were all season. And going back and reading some of the match reports from The Guardian from their favorite games of the season, going back and watching some highlights and some individual moments, it is worth remembering just how unplayable this Liverpool team were at times. And they have been more or less on the beach since they won the title. They've been giving some youngsters some minutes and maybe not having that level of ruthless efficiency that we saw from them in November, December, and January. And it's just so easy to then see, like, yeah, Liverpool won. They were great. They are a really good team. And that is 100% true. It just also doesn't do them justice, strangely enough, for how convincing they've been. And and that's not just that front three who are excellent. It's performers like Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson, who I did not realize until today were second and third in the league for most assists behind yeah. Kevin De Bruyne. Like, when your fullbacks are that involved and that important, but back it up with that type of performance and those statistics... It's just it's just a very revealing thing about how good Liverpool were from top to bottom and how many different options they had when it came to their attack. I have said very positive things, Ryan. I leave it to you to continue those positive things or just throw out some speculation as to why you think they might be less likely than Man City, who it sounds like are the bookies' favorites at this point. Yeah. I think it's a it is a bit of a coin toss isn't it although I do kind of think I if I if I were to put money down I think I would put it on Man City for maybe it's momentum reasons Taylor I think look how does Liverpool go from that season mm -hmm. to doing it again as you say that was City's attempt at doing it three times in a row and Liverpool basically put on two title winning performances two seasons in a row effectively didn't they mm -hmm. uh, I think if I'm not mistaken their two fullbacks were the two biggest assist givers in the previous season as well if uh, as we say all these seasons blur into one that wouldn't surprise me Liverpool are a very good team. We can we can very much say that. You know, didn't quite do as well in the Champions League this season as one may have hoped. Can I can I can I poo poo something mm -hmm. a little bit? Not impressed with. Oh, I'm, I'm impressed with Jurgen Klopp. Not impressed with the fact that he chose not to show up for that Shrewsbury uh, FA Cup replay. I thought that was very disrespectful. I haven't forgotten that, Jürgen. I haven't forgotten that. Do you remember that when that happened? I do. They, sort of, they drew 2-2 with Shrewsbury, and then there was the replay at Anfield, and he sort of sent his assistant. And it, this is not to be conflated with the game they played in, the, I think, the League Cup, when it was simultaneous with a game in the uh, the World Championship, get the FIFA Club Cup. Club Cup, easy for me to say, but when they had two games simultaneously, this was just a, ah, this game's not very important, not going to show up. I, I, I didn't like that very much. Hmm. I mean... I, I have le less of an issue with it for what it was in the moment. Like, I don't remember being particularly frustrated by it. I would also say that was what, FA Cup, you said? Or League Cup? 
That was the FA Cup, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is our Premier League review, Ryan. We don't even need to speculate on that. <laughs> uh, but I, I think for me, what it will come down to is that depth uh, with Liverpool's squad. We know what happens if, say, Mohamed Salah goes down or if they're without mm. Firmino or certainly if Virgil van Dijk is out with a long-term injury. How they replace those players and how they keep everybody fresh and motivated, that will be the very interesting thing to me for Liverpool in this offseason and in the coming season, so- uh, such as it is. Let me give, put a hypothetical in front of you here. We start at this season again. Mm-hmm. If Virgil van Dijk has the length of injury that Laporte had, does Liverpool still win the league? Probably not. Honestly. Probably not, right? No, because I think they already have injuries to other center backs as well. Mm. And, they have, and they've already lost uh, Dejan Lovren. Dejan Lovren has left for Russia. He gets an, a nice send-off today, I believe it was. But yeah, yeah then you're looking at Jean Matip and Joe Gomez. You're looking at Gomez and Lovren. That is not the same as Virgil van Dijk. So I take your point that if you miss one or two of those key performers, you're in a lot of trouble. And that is maybe a thing that they will look to deal with this summer in terms of strengthening in a few of those positions where they are. Maybe a little bit light because even a player like Jerdan Shakiri, I think, was brought in as a capable replacement if something happens to Mane or Salah. But is he at this point still at that level? They have Minamino there. I don't know if he could be utilized in those roles as effectively. I do wonder if bringing in somebody, they were linked with Jaden Sancho for a very long time. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. And I think that would be a bit much for a player that you're then basically bringing in to be almost rotational. But Mm. I do think if they get a little bit more depth that continues to push everybody, you've got to make sure that drive is still there as opposed to those players going from, this is great, I'm getting all these minutes, to like, am I the only one who's, who's playing this spot? Like, I'm playing every single game. Okay, this is not great. And then you kind of go the way of Tottenham. We'll talk about them in a little bit. So <laughs> well, I think, so, yeah. c- circling back to your question about where, what Man- who Man City would bring mm-hmm. in, I think maybe it's a similar question to Liverpool. And this leads me to thinking that traditionally it's really hard to get a striker. It's the hardest position to fill in your squad, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's centre-backs now. Because there's lots of wide players out there. There's lots of attacking midfielders. It seems like the market is full of, of other positions. But... Can you name five centre-backs who'd be on the market this summer? Uh, No, and I think a big part of that is because, I I think I agree with you, uh, because with forwards, for example, you could have a a team needs a target striker. There's lots of different target strikers. A team needs a very pacey striker to kind of break the offside line. You could have different options. You could have a sort of variety. I would say Liverpool would struggle to replace Roberto Firmino because he does a lot of little things, but Mm. I think you could find players, bring them in, get them familiar, and help them figure it out. But it's that variety that I think gives you options when it comes to your attack. So many teams these days want ball-playing center backs. They want like center backs who can do their defensive job, be good in the air, but also help with possession, help facilitate attacks. And that is almost such a universal concept to some extent that I, I, I'm with you. It would be very hard to find somebody who isn't also in demand from five other teams and is going to cost 120 million euros in a normal mm. market. We're not sure what that will mean this time around. But right. yeah, I, I really, I think there is a sort of dearth of that level world-class player. You always hear Koulibaly mentioned, but I will say I don't really know know if he has that passing ability I wouldn't I can't say with certainty what his strengths and weaknesses are the way I think a lot of people probably could with a player like Virgil van Dijk so it's it's a fair question and one that I think both teams are going to have to sort of deal with uh this offseason window I'm not sure which one I would back more although Man City do tend to have a little bit more money 
They do indeed. That is one of their key strengths, Taylor. That and litigiousness. <laughs> and litigiousness. We've got many, many more uh, talking points to get to, takeaways from the season. Uh, we've only gotten through two so far. I'm sure more <laughs> will flow through. But first, we should talk about today's sponsor. It's Fubo. We love us some Fubo. They gave the Cooligans a show, and we still love them even though they did that. <laughs> uh, Fubo has different plans for you. Uh, the family plan is, I think, the most effective in terms of allowing three different people to watch at the same time it also gives them i believe the family plan up to 500 hours of dvr storage so as i've said previously uh if you have a nephew who records a bunch of stuff they can do that and then if you have a friend who records a bunch of stuff you could do that and then you still have space for you to record your own programs uh and then maybe you watch some of that other stuff and it gives you experiences with uh new shows and and uh products and things like that why not why not right why not Taylor, mm-hmm. full confession here. I think I've prepped for this ad read wrong because I thought this was the athletic leisure wear that Ali G wore in the 90s. <laughs> Am I wrong? Uh, yeah. No, we're not uh, so much hyping FUBU as we are. Uh, <laughs> or f- f- was it FUBU? Yeah, FUBU. FUBU. Yes. It was FUBU. Yeah, yes, it I'm, was. I'm just jesting here. Of course, I love FUBU. Uh, FUBO. I love <laughs> See, FUBU as well. I should add that as well. <laughs> but uh, I'm a subscriber. It's a very, very fun uh, streaming service. Uh, you get seven-day free trial, which I appreciated very much. 30 hours of DVR, which I think you've covered here. Local broadcast channels and the NBC Sports, uh, mm-hmm. uh, NBCSN included on the national feed as well. That it's very important that you get the uh, streaming service with the NBC national feed on there as well, because not all of them do. I can tell you that from experience. Fubo definitely has that, though. Very good indeed. That is true. Uh, and uh, they did cut away briefly for, uh, to John Lewis's memorial service. And I, I, can, I can forgive them that. But, yeah, that is the reminder that you're watching on the, uh, the national channel for sure. But they do have that. Mm-hmm. They do have NBC Sports. Uh, the... the I believe confirmed news that ESPN will be joining, but they're not sure on when that will be. But for now, you can focus on next season of the Premier League. Uh, Fubo t- Fubo.tv will not disappoint. You can stay updated on your favorite leagues as well as local broadcast news, as Ryan already alluded to. Go to Fubo.tv slash TSS today and start your free seven-day trial. You will not regret it. That's Fubo.tv slash TSS. Start your free trial today. All right, we've talked a little bit about Man City. We've talked a little bit about Liverpool. Where shall we head next, Ryan? Should we go to Stamford Bridge? <laughs> I suppose we should, especially with that accent. That was when I go home for more than a few weeks. I'll start speaking a bit more like this. Oh, boy. That's, a, that's, that's my upbringing. I apologize for that. Anyway, let's move on swiftly. Do you from just there. hang out with Frank Lampard? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Dan okay. the offie. Dan the pub, mate. Yeah, anyway. Um, Frank Lampard, who's done very, very well, <laughs> I would add, to, uh, to qualify for the Champions League this season. This team is far from perfect, Taylor, but I think Frank Lampard deserves credit where it is due. If we rewind back to the start of this season, and as I mentioned on the top of the show, losing 4-0 to Manchester United, going into this season where many people saying, you know, this is a mistake putting Frank Lampard in this kind of position, giving him this responsibility at this stage in his managerial career. You know, he's maybe not as qualified as he should be. And let's not forget, this is a Chelsea side who had sold their best player by far in Eden Hazard during the summer. This is a Chelsea side who were not allowed to go and do any signings. This was a Chelsea side who was supposed to be in a rebuilding season. If you had told Chelsea fans maybe they'd get sixth or seventh mm-hmm. this season, at the start of that season, maybe after that first game at Old Trafford, they probably would have snapped your hand off at the opportunity. So yeah. I think that uh, although they have had lots of issues, I mean, there, there's there's been some poor runs. Like by the time New Year came around, they'd lost seven times. They'd lost at home to West Ham, Bournemouth, and Southampton before the New Year. So there, there was some uh, you know dodgy stuff going on there. This is a team who 
they got 66 points and they conceded 54 goals, which isn't fantastic. I think that's only a one better goal differential than Tottenham. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, they've been humbled by Bayern Munich in the Champions League as well. There's, 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 there's been some poor performances. Uh, what was the game recently where sort of everything looked terrible? I can't remember. There was one, there was one recently where <laughs> it was just very poor. I think it was two or three weeks ago. Was it? What? No, it was uh, Sheffield United. The 3-0 mm. loss to Sheffield United. That's what I'm thinking of. That'll do it. Where sort of nothing seemed to make sense in that game, did it? And but but despite all that despite these ups and downs despite the fact that week every, every week it's like a lottery whether i think chelsea are great or bad on balance you have to give lampard credit where it's due right you do and i'm glad you went first with that because you sort of talked out a lot of the confusion i have about chelsea because <laughs> i am of the mind that yes you're absolutely right that chelsea fans would have taken fourth place with frank lampard taking over uh qualifying for the champions league things seem relatively harmonious throughout that is a incredible positive and it's a strong season simultaneously there are those ups and downs there are those swings and misses that don't feel the same as for example, and it's an unfair bar to set, but like when Jurgen Klopp takes over Liverpool and you see that team start to resemble the Dortmund team that was so good with the gegenpressing and the counterpressing and the hitting on the break, but mm. then they have even more talent, even more depth, and as that team evolves, you can just see like, oh, they're playing this way, and unless they have a very bad day or unless another team is exceptionally excellent and well-prepared, you can sort of bet on Liverpool winning. With Chelsea, there are those games where it's just like, oh, it was just one of those games they lost 3-0, they lost 4-0. And that's not discrediting anything that Frank Lampard did. It's just that I feel like my takeaway is that they had a very good first season under Frank Lampard, but I am very eager to see what comes next. Because, Mm. to your point... This is a team that weren't able to make the big signings. They lose Aiden Hazard. Obviously, they already have Christian Pulisic brought in, but that's before Frank Lampard is on board. So we don't know how that's going to work. We don't know how he's going to get this team to play. Is the youth going to come good? To some extent, we have answers to a lot of those questions. But now, with the way that they're going about acquiring Hakim Ziyech, they've acquired Timo Werner. Uh, They are very, very heavily linked with the move for Kai Havertz. Uh, 80 million euros is the latest number I saw there. There's also links to Ben Chilwell and Jan Oblak. That one seems a bit harder because they've got to figure out what to do with Kepa. But then this is a traditional Chelsea team where they've brought a bunch of big big players with high profile uh, star caliber performance abilities to this team. And then the question is, can Frank Lampard make that work? And if Chelsea finish, say, fourth or fifth next season with these names on board, is that the same level of success? Probably not. So I think we shouldn't discount anything that Frank Lampard did, but I think it simultaneously sets us up for a very intriguing next season when they have that depth, when they have those big names, what do they do with them and how does Frank Lampard get the best out of them? Yep, that's a very good question. And maybe maybe the secret to his, his success has been that he brought through a lot of great youth players from 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 lower down in, in Chelsea, from you know, Reese and Mason Mountain, Tammy Abraham and mm-hmm. such. So maybe when you bring a bit more bigger fish in, maybe that changes his dynamic a little bit and that yeah. famous man management skill that um that Lampard's supposed to have. But also, do we give credit and this may lead to your one of your next points here, do we give credit for the gentle introduction of Christian Pulisic? Yeah, I think we do. And I do want to talk Pulisic. I first want to stick with the Frank Lampard aspect of that for a moment, because that is the other thing that I think he has done exceptionally well. And I almost think his experience is playing 
with Jose Mourinho, who I believe he got along really well with, mm-hmm. it, it feels like he has gotten some of the Mourinho, but not a lot of it. Because we don't see him bunkering, certainly. We don't see that approach, that philosophy. But also his man, man management approach, as you've said, I think is a little bit more player-oriented than Jose Mourinho's. And maybe that goes back to him playing at the level he did versus Jose not having that same uh, playing pedigree. But Frank Lampard hasn't thrown people into the bus. Even Kepa he hasn't really come out and said, like, he's just not good enough. He's mm. he's young, but he's got to be better. It's just sort of been, like, little comments here and there. Asides when asked about it, you don't hear him just slamming somebody and throwing them or just completely leaving them out and not talking about it. And so to your point, yeah, like, I, does Christian Pulisic thrive under Mauricio Sarri the way he has under Frank Lampard? Probably not, because I think Frank Lampard has gone about introducing him the right way, saying the right things publicly, like, really, in my mind, considered statements that don't leave – like you can't really overly interpret. We know uh, American soccer fans will break down things and read between the lines, and I know Daryl and I do that all the time on this show. And Frank Lampard has been more or less straightforward with like, no, it was like this, and so it was this. It'll be fine. No, it's like that. Yeah, he's got a little injury, so we rested him here. Like he doesn't dodge those questions. He doesn't try to play games in those moments, and I think that's really smart because mm. it allows people to understand what's going on so that then there aren't those big looming questions that then the media speculate, speculate on and you know that can create disharmony in the locker room. So I think Frank Lampard's approach in that regard has been excellent. I certainly think the way he has brought Christian Pulisic through and gotten him to the point where he is able to perform and seems to have the self-belief he does also deserves a lot of uh, praise and consideration. Ryan, you live in the United States, but I know you're not like a massive diehard U.S. men's national team fan. Not to say that you're not a fan, but maybe not the, the type to be scouring the internet for stories about potential dual nationals. What have you made of Pulisic's first season at Chelsea? I think it's been very good. Yeah, that's right. I think it's been very, very good. In fact, very, very good. I think maybe if he'd have played every game, we wouldn't have thought that. Mm-hmm. Maybe if he'd have played every minute, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in this position. I think that's, that's a credit to Frank Lampard as well, because he's been gently introduced. I mean, in that last game, the last day uh, on Sunday against Wolves, he was very good. Did he get the secondary assist, I want to say, for yes. the second goal? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, I just think he's been excellent and seems to carry himself very well. It is amusing when you go on Twitter afterwards when he does an interview and everyone's like, uh, everyone in the UK is like, oh, I forgot this guy's American. Mm-hmm. You want to hear his accent for the first time, which I think in a way is a backhanded compliment, is it yep. not? Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I think it is, yeah. <laughs> I used to get that sometimes of like, oh, you're pretty good for an American when I was playing in Turkey. And it's like, thanks, good for is not what you're really looking for. But I guess, yeah, it speaks volumes that they've forgotten he's American and have instead maybe chosen to embrace his Croatian heritage. Is that what they do? <laughs> Something like that. I think yeah. whenever I hear a commentator say like, like sometimes they hear them put the accent on Christian. So it'd be like, Christian Pulisic. And it's like you are going out of your way to make him sound not American. Uh, but he is. And and I would say with that in mind that for me this season has been the first time really since Clint Dempsey at Fulham, I would say, that it's been like you can sort of count on there being an American playing for a team in the Premier League, playing consistent outfield minutes for a team in the Premier League to the extent that you can rest assured he is either starting or on the bench and likely to sub on. Uh, And that is certainly due to the frequency of games that he is so routinely in and around that squad, and you can sort of bank on him at least getting substitute minutes. But it is still refreshing, and it has reached that point where there was a period with Clint Dempsey when he was just scoring so many goals for Fulham that it wasn't even like, oh, did Clint Dempsey play today? It was more so like, oh, I wonder if he scored today. And then he had. And Pulisic has sort of reached that level, too, with his goal scoring, with his assists. He has sort of provided more end products, certainly at the beginning of the, or at the end of the season than he did at the beginning. And 
in the same way that I think this has been a really strong season for Chelsea and I'm excited to see what comes next, I think the exact same thing goes for Christian Pulisic, who had high expectations coming in, had a big price tag, and I feel like has more or less justified them in what could have been a very difficult and probably was a very difficult first season. So credit to him, credit to Chelsea. Have we talked enough about uh, Chelsea and allowed you to do your accents? Far too much. Far too much, if you ask me. Can I move on to a club which is closer to your heart, Taylor? Sure. Manchester United. Uh Remember when Manchester United fans, yourself perhaps included, would laugh at Arsenal and Arsene Wenger for celebrating the fourth place trophy? Um, I have no recollection of that, but I also wouldn't know what that's like because they finished third. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a similar concept, right? (laughs) Kind of a similar concept. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's... Probably fair, given the way the season went with City and (laughs) Liverpool winning all the points. Yeah, so I I don't have much more to say about Manchester United, but sort of Solskjaer sort of silencing his critics is the narrative, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think I will say, like, we had uh, somebody ask us about Spurs' celebration for qualifying for the Europa League, and was that a bit over the top? And and I know what you mean, that it is it is a strange world when you go from, like, ah, oh, we don't need to worry ourselves with that sort of competition, to, like, woo, we finished fourth instead of fifth this year. That's <laughs> exciting. It is a yeah. strange turnaround, but I think it's also... Probably a realistic summary of where Manchester United are. Uh, and I think you're right that it's they're in a position where we think they have definitely improved. I think the squad depth is a major issue. I think Bruno Fernandes was the signing of the season. That is yeah. one of my points. Um, I'm fairly confident that isn't just my Manchester United bias. I think to bring him in for... Uh, I think it's going to end up being around 60, maybe. It might be even be a little bit more than that. I forget the exact numbers. But to bring him in but get the immediate impact that they have for him to be such a central figure, it seems, in that locker room but then on the field. And I think to bring some enthusiasm out of Paul Pogba and make Paul Pogba enjoy playing for Manchester United, when you see it through that lens as well, I think that's where I really start to see Bruno Fernandes as a next-level signing. Because not only did he himself elevate his performance and elevate the team, but I think bringing stronger, consistent performances out of Paul Pogba and getting him back into the swing of things probably keeps him there and keeps him happy, and that keeps Manchester United fans happy long-term. I think I'm just about on board with him being the signing of the season because he was so, so transformative. Mm -hmm. And he's been so excellent and really has really changed the vibe is not the word I want to use. The essence of this team, I would say. Uh, I think he he probably has because I think you like even his moments where he keeps getting knocked around. Sorry for jumping in, but I think I'm with you that like even when he gets knocked around and gets the fouls and gets up. Yes, he's talking to the refs. Yes, he's going at them. But there is that fight. There is that sort of grit to his performances. And then simultaneously, when amazing things happen and the team scores, he celebrates, don't get me wrong. Mm. But there's also those moments where he's like, all right, let's keep going. Like, no big deal. We've done it before. Let's do it again. And that sort of practicality combined with skill combined with tenacity feels like a Manchester United player of old and is probably another reason why I, a Manchester United fan, am fairly, fairly excited to have him in there. Yeah, maybe that plays into the, my point, which I was going to make, which is that he seems to have quite a high likability level. And maybe that is because mm-hmm. he's more like a Manchester United player of old. And we all know that things in olden times were better. The um, signing of the season argument, I don't need, I put two other names forward. Danny mm-hmm. Ings. Yep. He of nearly, very nearly getting the golden boot if he got another goal. We'd need another two goals, wouldn't he, on Sunday. Um, what what did he cost? A 20 million or something from Liverpool? Um Second, second placing in the Golden Boot. I think that's incredible. Really helped uh, Southampton out this season. I had, I had the number in front of me. Yes, uh, twenty million pounds. Uh, there you go. Brought in from Liverpool. Yes, yep. he has done quite well. Or maybe Raúl Jiménez. I mean, he's pretty that's good tough. too, right? 
Yeah, I think those are the three. Those are the three yeah. for sure. Yeah, Jimenez especially with the goals. I saw somebody on The Guardian making the argument that because of his goal-scoring ability combined with his all-rounded versatility, that is he the best number nine in the league? But then they did that thing where, in trying to make the argument, they dismiss a lot of things. It's like, Sergio Aguero, can he do this? I'm not sure. Can Harry Kane do this? And it's like, oh, I think he could do that. Like, you all are making an argument by dismissing some things very quickly out of hand. But I still would say that you're right. Jimenez and Danny Ings probably also deserve to be in that conversation. With that in mind, uh, do you want to talk South Hampton for a moment because I think they were a big takeaway for me mostly because they were a huge takeaway for Daryl Grove my co-host yeah I'd love to what do you got uh essentially just that Ralph Hasenhutl proved it can be a good idea to stick with a manager especially if you're really buying what they're selling because there was a time period in which uh Southampton did not look convincing I believe it is still the case that they won more games away from home than at home so that sort of That's jinx right. remains but lest we forget, they lose 9-0 to Leicester, a loss that dropped them into the relegation zone in October. And there are so many teams of Southampton's sort of caliber and uh, fame that would immediately part ways with the manager because they can't run the risk of certainly not relegation, but also losing out on that sort of like the lucrative sell-on market of we've got all these players, we're bringing through young players, we're very exciting, we're very promising. Who do you want to buy next? And I think they have kind of returned to that. But they've stuck with Ralph Hasenhutl, they've stuck with his philosophy, and I think a big thing, Daryl and I talked about this on the Weekend Review, is the idea that the longer like longer tenured your manager is, combined with the more the team buys into their style, the more success you're going to have. And it does feel like Southampton have bought in on what Hasenhutl is, is selling. I think the players mm. have as well, and you've seen that in their performances, and it seems like it can then continue to grow from there. Of They now know the style, they know what they're going to play, and they can better identify who they want to bring in the we it feels like we had that under Pochettino, we had that under Kuman. Then they sort of lost their way a little bit, and Claude Puel obviously doesn't work, and it kind of goes from there. Now it feels like they have an identi- identity and a style that has been established even through hard, difficult times. And now it seems like they're going to kind of move on from here to that next level. So yeah. I think sticking with a manager has proven to be a strong decision by Southampton and deserves praise for sure, as does the performance of Ralph Hasenhutl and his players. Definitely so. This and we we should heap praise on Southampton's front office for doing the anti Watford approach here. Uh, yes. As you say, the yes. the, 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 uh, the nine nil loss to Leicester was the tenth game of the season. They'd only had two wins at that point. They were in the relegation zone. Uh, they lost the two games after that as well. So that would have been a really easy point to dump him, mm-hmm. and they didn't. They stuck with him and. It has paid dividends, hasn't it? A comfortable mid-table finish in the end. They're looking really good after lockdown. If, if uh, well, here's, here's a good stat that since that nine nil, Southampton have got more points than Leicester. That is simultaneously surprising and not surprising. Like, it's yes, crazy, isn't that it? That makes total sense. But yeah. you know, you would not have expected that at all. So, and, you know, they only had one one defeat after mm-hmm. the lockdown. They beat Manchester City after that point. And yeah, they did. It, just, a, just full credit to them for sticking to the guns. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for them. As a former resident of Southampton, very happy for them. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you're very happy for them. I'm happy with Danny Ings, who justifies that transfer. I'm mm-hmm. happy, even though they drew 2-2 with Manchester United, but I thought that was a great performance. And then obviously the one no win you mentioned over City, a good one as well. What will be interesting for them going forward is how many of their players they do hold on to and of the players they sell, how much they're able to get for them. But that is a conversation for another show. Uh, we have many points to get to, but right now I want to talk about 
Artifact. Artifact are sponsoring today's episode. Uh, Ryan, I am not sure you are as familiar with Artifact as, say, I am, because I've talk- been talking about them for about two weeks. I also did an Artifact. We commissioned one to mm. sort of pre- preserve the history of the beginning of the Total Soccer Show. But for you, Ryan, if you don't really know that much about them, they basically create personalized podcasts about topics uh, that you commission, but it's anything that you could sort of be interested in. So as I said, we did one about the origin of the Total Soccer Show. We also get lots of questions about Daryl's treatment and how that's progressing. So he did one with his wife uh, about everything that he's kind of gone through and where they are now. But uh, I know some have done like uh, commission ones for their parents for their anniversary or for their own for like a wedding gift or something like that. It doesn't just have to be marriages. It can be really any sort of story that you want told that you can utilize an oral narrative to get across. And George does a great job of doing the interviews and putting them all together, and they sound quite professional. There are more people than George involved, but I give George the credit uh, firsthand. Is that because you know his name? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> it's an I, easy I, one. I am uh, very familiar with this Oove artifact and George as well. Uh, as you say, it's, uh, uh, it helps you set up uh, um, a podcast with a professional interviewer to make about whatever you want. And that, that angle of family history really appeals to me, Tete. Like to sit down with my parents and to talk about their parents and the stuff we've never actually sat down and discussed, like, you know, their history in world wars and such. I'd love to have that documented in podcast form. Mm-hmm. And you know what else I love that having documented in podcast form? You can find out if you go to heyartifact.com slash TSS and learn the origin story. It's, 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 it's MCU-level stuff. It really is. <laughs> it really is. It's, we're world-building for our eventual 14-picture uh, deal that we're going to get. I'm sure that's going to happen. <laughs> but for now, you can go to heyartifact.com. You can hear some samples. There's a ton of ways to use Artifact to capture those stories, as we said. When you're ready to make an Artifact of your own, use the code TSS to get $40 off your first order that's heyartifact.com use code tss for forty dollars off thank you very much to artifact for sponsoring this review episode of the total soccer show ryan where shall we head next in our 2019 2020 premier league takeaways episode we've done the theater of dreams so how about the theater of nightmares let's go to tottenham oh boy (laughs) <laughs> I made a snarky joke about Man United fans laughing at Arsenal for celebrating fourth place trophy. I realize that snarky joke might have been more appropriate for Jose Mourinho and his staff's reaction to qualifying for the Europa League uh, yesterday. I had a feeling you would have some thoughts on this one. Uh, I, I was I, like, it is a it is a difficult thing because Jose Mourinho has said so many negative things about so many negative topics that. It feels a little bit like a current president that you could probably find a tweet that contradicts an opinion he currently has. Mm. Uh, Ryan, what did you make of those uh, celebrations, the hugs, the smiles, the jumping on each other? Um, It sort of sets par, doesn't it? It sets the par for where Jose Mourinho is at at this point, I suppose, is what it does. And for all the mean things he has said about that particular competition... Uh, he does. He has gone for it. He went for it with Manchester United. So I think he might do a similar thing with this team as well. The point I wanted to make in my reflection of Tottenham Hotspur mm-hmm. is, would this team be in a better position right now if Maurizio Pochettino was still here? And I think this is a, it's not an easy question to answer, but Pochettino was fired. Tottenham, Tottenham were in 14th place. They had three wins from... 12 games and everybody on the field looked disinterested. The, the whole pressing thing, they sort of built the reputation and got to a Champions League final on. Nah, we're not doing that anymore. Christian Eriksen was sort of, I don't know what he's doing. Did he have flip-flops on for some games? Quite possibly. <laughs> I'm not even sure. Uh, and you had your, you had your record transfer, uh, Tongi Undumbele, um, barely being able to keep up with play. Something mm-hmm. was awry 
yeah. with Pochettino. Something we don't quite have the uh, information on went awry with Pochettino. And that makes me think, yes, Tottenham are in a better place than they would be if Pochettino was still there. I'm not sure Tottenham would have finished in what was seventh in the end, wasn't it? If um, Was it seventh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if Pochettino was still there. I, that's that's my thought. But that's not to say that it's a good situation that Mourinho is there. That because is pretty much seemed, my exact takeaway, yes. that's that. I think so too. And it's it just seems so antithetical to what Tottenham should have. I'm still surprised by that appointment. I still remember a bit how shocked I was that day when that happened, when that got announced all of a sudden. You know, he's he, he's a manager who's built his career on wanting to spend lots of money. Tottenham don't do that. He's got a completely different playing identity to what Poch had. And it, it just seems like a, a real square peg in a round hole situation. And it still kind of does, doesn't it? I don't think any Spurs fan would be super happy they've got Jose Mourinho on their books. And that made me think even further, where would be a good club for Jose Mourinho? And do you know where I landed? I have no idea. Newcastle. Uh-huh. You mean Newcastle with the takeover or Newcastle Newca- pre-takeover? Newcastle takeover goes yeah. through Mourinho, spending loads of money, mm-hmm. getting negative play, and getting that team slightly higher aspirations than it has now. Am I, am I right? Other than that, like I think you would... Like it depends on if it's the initial Chelsea model of like, oh yeah, they're they're playing fairly defensive, but they are scoring some goals, and we haven't mm. seen success in so long. So this is all very exciting. But if it were the sort of Man City route of no, we expect a higher caliber of, of football, a higher caliber of quality of play, you might run into some problems there. I'm still though, I'm also not sure that he doesn't or isn't the answer at Tottenham, and that's where my confusion is. But I, I don't want to sort of jump all over that one without letting you explain why you want him at Newcastle, aside from <laughs> spending all that money and potentially winning things and frustrating people. I was just thinking of the most suitable team for his tactics, for his mm-hmm. disposition, for the way he operates. It just feels like a new owner at Newcastle. I'm not trying to talk Steve Bruce out of a job. Don't get me wrong. He's a hero up there. That just feels like the only place I think he could be comfortable. Well, here's, here's where I think it, it does sort of work at Spurs, though, is I think with Pochettino after the Champions League final, I think I go with the sort of consistent narrative that has since been reported that that was supposed to be his swan song if things didn't change, that he wanted to win the, win the Champions League with Tottenham so he could say, we want some silverware. But at the same time, I think new things weren't going to change in the sense that they weren't going to invest massively in the squad. It was going to be about selling players before they brought anybody in. And I think at that moment, some of his fight leaves. But I think also when you're winning, a lot of these types of systems, when they're very highly detail-oriented, they require a lot of the same training over and over again. And this is a thing I've heard from top, top, top tier teams to USL League One teams, that if you're doing the same thing every day in training, all the time, it's the same drills over and over again, but you're winning, there's that vibe of like, who cares, we're winning, let's have fun, let's make it interesting. When you're losing, and it's, oh, we're doing this again, oh, we're doing this again, and it becomes Mm. a little bit of an eye roll, you lose that effort, you lose that intensity, and as soon as players have lost that, but kind of either can't be punished or won't be punished, it really furthers the negativity. And I think just Jose Mourinho coming in, having a completely different style, a completely different system, doing different things probably already gets that bump a little bit. Where I remain confused is that he is still Jose Mourinho. So there's still the sort of 
bad blood with Endombele that has either destroyed the locker room or had no effect on the locker room, depending on who you talk to. And that's where I am with it is that like, I, I do think that they're in a stronger position under Mourinho than they would have been if they had kept Pochettino. I think they probably fall further back and, and yeah. it just ends in a woeful season and we don't really know where they go. But I also simultaneously understand why Spurs fans don't feel that same level of enthusiasm as they did under Poch because he had them playing this really exciting brand of soccer and you could kind of count on them to be electrifying and pull games back when they had no business winning them. I don't know if you say the same thing under Mourinho, nor does he feel like a potential long-term appointment. So the sort of, I feel like all we're doing is bumming out Tottenham fans, but maybe hopefully also like giving word to their frustrations or giving justification to their frustrations. Cause I understand why this would be a very unfun time to be a Tottenham fan. Uh, and I don't know if it gets better in the near future, but I also don't know if it gets worse. Well, my Schadenfreude-ometer is going through the roof right now, thinking about that Amazon documentary. That's all I can say. I'm looking forward to that <laughs> a lot. And can you, I think the celebrations uh, after the uh, draw with Crystal Palace at the weekend I'm picturing the Amazon documentary. It's like the end of the Breakfast Club. The fist goes up in the air. Mm-hmm. Some simple mind starts playing as Jose celebrates. And that's how they end the documentary. And then they cut away to him saying the C-bomb loads of times. <laughs> I mean, I think if you look at where they were at one point of the season when it's just Lucas Mora, when he doesn't really have a midfield, where he's not really sure who his best defense is. He knows he has Hugo Lloris, unless he doesn't have Hugo Lloris for random games. Like, I think there's a lot of instability in that team, and I I do think his celebrations were genuine, that he felt very happy that he had gotten them to a European spot. I think that's the thing that we will hear him trumpet many times this coming season. Uh, Let's talk about their... Uh, major rivals who also did not have the best of seasons. Let's talk Arsenal, shall we? Sure, let's do it. You want to talk some Mikel Arteta? I do, because I think that's where you have to go with Arsenal, because so many of the season reviews I read were pretty negative on Arsenal because of where they finished, because they didn't finish in European places. They finished behind Tottenham. They had many ups and downs. And and I get confused by that because, to me, there's Arsenal pre-Arteta and there's Arsenal post-Arteta. And that is a major distinction because taking over for Unai, for Unai Emery, it is obviously not a harmonious team. It is not a good situation. And I think we've started to see the way he wants to play. This is kind of what I was saying about Jurgen Klopp earlier. You can see his philosophy and style taking shape and there are still players that aren't going to fit in that I think two years from now we look at that at at Arsenal and see some names that were there this season but I doubt we see as many Uh, and I think we will see him kind of bring in the people that fit exactly what he wants but I think you can start to see the positivity in the way they're playing though they finish behind Spurs I think Arsenal fans will probably be the much happier of the two fan bases for the sort of confidence in the coaching situation. Maybe I'm overhyping Mikel Arteta. Maybe I'm giving too much credence to that. But I think anytime you have a sort of young, promising manager with connections to the club, you're going to feel a bit more optimistic about the situation. What do you make of that? Are you in on Mikel Arteta? Are you cautiously optimistic or are you just cautious? I usually agree with you, Taylor. You know Mm -hmm. that, right? I, I do sure, know that. Not sure I do on this one. So okay. If everyone is. I, I just think, yeah, yes, it was very impressive with that FA Cup win over Manchester City, which confounded all expectations, showing, you know, the son taking on daddy and winning, um, so to speak. But I think it was less than <laughs> a month said. ago. <laughs> I think it was less than a month ago when they lost to Brighton. And mm-hmm. it was 
absolutely dreadful. Just soft all over the uh, over the field. You know, we were talking about this maybe being the worst Arsenal midfield in mm. memory. The centre backs were off and full backs looked bad and just you know, even Arteta could have been criticized for leaving Martinelli on the bench when he was this is when he was fit. They were chasing a goal and he made some odd substitutions. Mm. All over the place it seemed like stuff was going wrong for Arsenal. And I think you're only 90 minutes away from that happening again is my... And I, I hope to be Nancy negative about this, but yes, there's a narrative of heading in the right, right direction, but also there's another narrative of eh, floating just about where we are being Arsenal. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I think that's probably fair. And I think it's a good perspective to keep it's a good balance to have because <laughs> I, I i do think i put a lot of faith in arteta's connection to pep guardiola and i think him coming into arsenal he's going to get a lot of that same backing that say raf hasenhutl got i think because of who he is with that club and what he represents um but then i think he also backs it up with strong tactical decisions on certain games and you're right that i am probably waiting that man city victory pretty highly <laughs> and, mm. and Which is, I think it was impressive don't get it me wrong. was it was but i also understand what you mean that there are, are other issues and there are some selection uh questions that could be asked i think the way he's handled Mesut ozil is simultaneously good and bad that like he hasn't let it distract he hasn't let it be this major thing but also hasn't really dealt with it in a way that we understand what's happening or what the future may hold my assumption is that he sort of was trying to to bite his tongue and make the best of a bad situation and will then really start changing things this offseason if we start the next Premier League season with a lot of the same players in a lot of the same positions and a lot of the same questions we've had about Arsenal for the last year or two or three years, then maybe my optimism fades uh, a little bit. Is it fair of me to say that Arteta's dealing of Ozil is a bit like the president and the current pandemic in that his attitude is, if you, it's a big deal, but if you ignore it, it will eventually go away? Yeah, except Mesut Ozil literally contractually will eventually go away. Coronavirus, <laughs> unfortunately, has no lucrative contract that will see them go to another team eventually. Very true. Although uh, I both would draw them, my analogy. Both of them seem destined to thrive in the United States. I guess. hey oh, <laughs> Yeah. Pandemics are fun, huh? Let's yeah. not talk about a pandemic. Let's talk about another team. Let's talk about... Who, who do you want to talk about, Ryan? What do you want to talk about? Where do you want to go next? Can I just do a very quick one that's not about a team specifically? Yes. Something we could... Let's not spend more than 30 seconds on it, but VAR. Okay. It has not solved any of the problems it was so, sought to solve. It's mm. just created other controversies. Uh, and a, a major controversy being that Aston Villa arguably stayed up because of a VAR mm. failure. Right. In that the uh, the draw they had with Sheffield United, where the ball clearly crossed the line and they got a point in that game, they stayed up by a point. And Bournemouth could be very, very unhappy about that. And I think they have a very good reason to be unhappy. This was supposed to be the empirical way of sorting out all the errors. And in practice, it just haven't done that. And if I was to ask, what, where, to, where do we go next? I'm not necessarily sure that we scrap it, but maybe we use the pitch side monitors like the referees do in other leagues and organizations in the Premier League. What do you think? You have correctly anticipated what my question was going to be. Uh, how do they fix it or what's a change you'd like to see? And I think I'm with you that I think the monitors, it at least, I've said this before, I'll say it again. It at least gives the referee something to go do so yeah. that they are not standing there with their finger in their ear while a bunch of players stand around and frustratedly gesture at them and talk at them and yell at them. 
that makes it seem like we're just sort of at an impasse waiting for some other party somewhere else in the world uh, to, to give a ruling to tell him what's what. Whereas the referee goes to the monitor, it moves him away from the players. Uh, he or she can then look at it, review what's happening, make the decision, come back on it. It feels like the referee still has the control over the game that we want as opposed mm. to like, sorry, it's out of my hands. I'm waiting for the person to tell me yes or no. And And I do think that that, at least from a viewer standpoint, would be a better look than just sitting there as the referee tries to figure out what to do next. Yeah, I think that that would help me even just... That would help me rationalize the, the technology being there, I think. Because yeah. after all, the referee is in charge of the game. So why shouldn't he have the evidence to look at with his own eyes, not mm-hmm. someone else's eyes in a parking lot near Heathrow? <laughs> I, I would say... I think that until that offside rule gets updated and however they want to update it, we're still going to have these conversations because whenever there's a player who is technically offside, they are offside. And we're going to get those goals called back that are – it was one inch and it was the pass before the pass, but he's he is materially involved, so it has to be given. That's what she said. That's, there we go. Uh, so <laughs> I think you have to you have to look at that as well. And until they change that rule, I think we're going to continue to have those same issues. And maybe the way to deal with it is just to be like, yep, it's that offside thing. Till it's fixed, we're not going to talk about it. And we move right <laughs> on because otherwise it's going to make people lose their minds. Yeah. Agreed. All right. All right. Well, let's let's not lose our minds. Let's not talk about VAR anymore. Let's instead talk about The Athletic for a moment. The Athletic are also sponsoring today's episode uh, and would specifically like to talk to people who are interested in advertising. Uh, podcasting on The Athletic is a great way to reach new audiences. Uh, you could go the hyper-local route and look for like podcasts that are focused on a specific team in a specific city or a specific city coverage. From a sports perspective, you could advertise there. If you're trying to go for a more national appeal, a show like, say, The Total Soccer Show, which has listeners mm. around the country, could be one that you could advertise on. But Ryan, uh, I know that you have not yet chosen to advertise yourself on The Athletic, but can you talk a little bit about how people could go about doing so um they could certainly go to uh theathletic.com slash podcasts podcast <laughs> what is Pos- it? podcast ads uh yeah podcast ads <laughs> i couldn't read it <laughs> <laughs> sorry taylor this is mm. theathletic.com slash podcast ads and you can find mm. out how to do some advertising what better way to advertise your business than on your favorite podcast is what i ask you indeed our loyal listeners, loyal listeners and uh, readers and listeners of The Athletic are very engaged. Just like mm-hmm. you, baby. Get it done. Theathletic.com slash podcast ads. Well done. There you Podcasted. can fill out a simple form. They will get back to you right away. Uh, basically, you can answer a couple quick questions and they'll kind of determine what works. You can have those back and forth and then you can get to the advertising by going to theathletic.com slash podcast ads today. <laughs> we got it done, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> Let's get into the home stretch, shall we? Where else shall we go? What else shall we talk about from the season that was? Uh, A couple of quick ones to fire Mm -hmm. through for me. Let's get this one out of the way. Broadcast deals, I think, are going to change forever, forever, ever, forever, ever ever, after this season. Uh, Not just because of the success. So let me me, um, contextualize it. The broadcast deals that we have in the U.S. are quite different, sorry, to the ones in the U.K., which kind of dictate everything. They dictate the kickoff times of Premier League games, and they dictate the days of the week when the Premier League takes place. And there is a 3 p.m. or 10 a.m. Eastern um, blackout in the UK where no games can be shown on TV to encourage people to go and watch games live and watch their local lower league sides and whatnot, which is a good principle. I think that the, the way that Amazon 
Prime in the UK, they had a couple days where they staggered the kickoff time. So you had like, I think, four or five games in the same day. And we had it mirrored on NBC here as well. Uh, That worked very well. It worked very well on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, We've had lots of different days of the week where we wouldn't normally have Premier League soccer uh, uh, post-lockdown. Um, so I think it's demonstrated that there, there is a flexibility when games can be shown. And I think I would predict that there will be more of a model like the Liga where uh, staggered kickoff times are standard. I will go one further in my prediction that the Premier League will eventually not have 3 p.m. kickoffs on a Saturday. That will be the reserve of the lower leagues and that will get around the broadcast blackout. That will mean every game can be shown in the UK, which is the market which dictates the uh, dictates all the finances there. And I would predict that, yeah, we'd, we'd get sort of staggered throughout the day, throughout Sunday. Maybe even Sunday becomes the Premier League day at some point. But that's my prediction that this pandemic, if anything, has maybe brought on a change in the scheduling Hmm. going forward. Daryl has talked a little bit about like broadcast before comparing uh, U.S. broadcasts with the way like uh, people in England handle it. For you living here, Ryan, is there something in, is there anything in particular that you enjoy when it comes to the way American TV channels or networks cover soccer? Like, do you think there are things that the U.S. does particularly well or are there things you think the United States definitely needs to improve upon? I think NBC does an incredible job with the Premier League. I think they're streets ahead of any of the prior broadcasters. It's a very different beast. If you ever watch a Sky game, Taylor, in the UK, the the analysis is, you know, Phil Neville whining and Jamie Carragher whining about something, and they'll get really into the weeds on one particular thing. Whereas the coverage here... It's a little bit broader, but I think it's much more engaging. The way they have their conversations, the way they'll look at particular flashpoints in a game, it's kind of a little bit a little bit quicker and maybe a bit less stagnant than you might mm-hmm. get in the UK. And a bit, uh, the UK maybe presumes you're really interested in the real minutiae of something happening sometimes. So I would say I think it's actually better here. Hmm, that's interesting. Do do you think like to some extent are are British like networks are they the same or British broadcasters are they the same as in the United States as like they tend to gravitate towards like the personality as much as what the personality is saying like it seems as though they just sort of throw Roy Keane on there because they know he's going to be salty and angry <laughs> and that always creates good little clips of him being annoyed or confused or frustrated and i and to some extent like his analysis he's usually like yeah it was fine or like, nah, it's not good enough. It's like either like it was okay or he's raging. And it seems like that is what they're going for as opposed yeah. to Roy Keane offering astute analysis of what's happening in the game. Yeah, maybe maybe the analysts here are here on their own merits rather than, as you say, a very famous former footballer saying saying incendiary things. Mm-hmm. and Or Graham Souness criticizing Paul Pogba, which seems to be another trope of Sky. So Yeah, I'm I, not a big fan of that one. Not, not the best. So... <laughs> uh, I, I, as I say, I, I will reiterate, I think we don't know how good we have it out here. Not only that we get to see all the games if we want to, and way, way, way cheaper than it will cost in the UK with their subscription deals. Uh, but it, I think the coverage is, is generally very well done and, and better in many ways. All right. All right. Well, yeah. uh, credit to NBC Sports. Then credit to you, Ryan, for that point. Uh, credit to Wolves for making me very confused. And that's where I'm going to take us next because my okay. initial thought was that next season I think could be a very important one for Wolves because they've sort of reached the point where they are comfortably mid-table. They can expect to be there. 
But we do know that they're a team with ambitions. We do know that they want to kind of push on to that next level. And so initially I had thought that maybe next year would be the season that if they finish in the kind of the same spot, that maybe that's when we see Nuno head to uh, ideally greener pastures and they try to bring in somebody else who can either really push them to the next level or, as is often the case, uh, see them falter and fall away. I talked to Daryl about this, who's obviously a Wolves fan, and his theory is that they're basically content to finish in that spot, that they are okay with that for now, and that the bigger issue going forward, at least one of the bigger issues, will be how do they deal with losing players? And that is a very good point that I had not thought about, and that is where I am with Wolves, that they seem very content or very capable of finishing exactly where they are. I don't think they're ever going to be relegation-threatened, but I also don't think, unless they spend a ton of money, maybe literally a ton of money, that they're going to be in that Champions League conversation. So I think it's about how do you sort of build the base out, build the depth, to then start to try to move in that direction. So say Jimenez, who we've uh, mentioned previously, does get a bunch of offers. Say Adama Traore does. Or even like, at, like in a more key position, like say Ruben Neves, I've got to go with the actual Portuguese pronunciation there because I'm pretentious. Uh, he like, How do you replace him if he moves on? And I think that is the major issue that Wolves will probably have to combat. And so rather than it be like next season is when they push for the Champions League or next season they're going to fall away, I think more so what I'm interested in and my takeaway from this season is is they're good, but how do you how do you stay good so that you can then become great? That is where I think Wolves are right now. Yeah. That is my take on Wolverhampton. Ryan, I throw it to you to try to parse that entire monologue. I'm still getting over Ruben Nesh, but uh, uh-huh. yeah, I'll, I'll try and get something. There. I mean, <laughs> I think my next door neighbor was a Portuguese professor at UVA. And so I think I would usually, whenever we talk about Brazil or Portugal or any Portuguese player, I would always get the full pronunciation right at me. And so I think that rubbed off a little bit. So as a quick story, we went to Portugal on vacation last year. Do you remember when you could go on vacation places? That was fun. Vaguely, very um, vaguely. Uh, my daughter is called Maddie, and we sort of looked up the Portuguese translator for a load of words we were going to use. And Maddie, they, they say Maggi, and we still call her that, and we call her Madge. So uh, Portuguese has rubbed off on our family. That's a, 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 an aside for you, but mortal That's perfect answer. <laughs> uh, I think I misspoke when I said that Tottenham finished seventh. They, of course, finished sixth. Wolves have finished seventh the past mm. two seasons, if I'm not mistaken. Are you thinking... The, the issue is that they can't stay in stasis and go for seventh again. You know, wasn't there a period where Stoke finished in the same position for like five years running or something? Is, is there an issue of, uh, that they have to push on and, or they're going to drop dramatically? Stoke is exactly the team that I was talking about, where it's like they do the same thing. It starts under Tony Pulis, and then they think, all right, if we're going to really move to that next level, we've got to make a move. And I think that's when Mark Hughes comes in. And then it works for a little bit and then it doesn't. And I think teams that are in that position, there tends to be that moment of like, yeah, this is fine, but we've just been doing this. Should we try to move to that next level? And I was kind of operating the assumption that Wolves would be in that category of, all right, now we want to try to get top six or maybe we want to go top four. Daryl dissuaded me of that notion and I think argued that there'll be more about building long-term stability but I'm aware that he's a Wolves fan and that might be what he wants more than what they'll actually do but my assumption is that they will sort of strengthen in areas without necessarily dropping 50 million pounds on three different players so that their expenditure is quite as massive as as it has been at times in previous seasons yeah and to your, to your question about how do you replace players who leave, I think you just get your Portuguese super agent to just get some <laughs> well, more, don't it. you? Isn't that yeah. the answer? <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. so. But it's, I think like that's not as much of a takeaway, I suppose. So I guess I should just say that my big takeaway for this season was that uh, I will remember it uh, – 
if I'm thinking about this season like five years from now, I will probably remember it as that year that Raul Jimenez proved that he is very good, even if I still can't pronounce his name consistently. Jimenez, excuse me. But yeah, I think his consistency and quality, uh, I don't know if it quite goes to the, is he the best number nine in the league? But he is not far off from that conversation. And it does make me terrified for when the United States plays Mexico. So if nothing else, that's what this season has done for me all the more. Name a better number nine in the league. And don't say Olivier Giroud. I mean, Olivier Giroud. <laughs> They're both Fair handsome. Enough. They're both All very right. handsome. Very Where true. should we go next, Ryan? Where should we go next? Uh, should we go in a little bit of championship y slash relegation y chat? How about yeah. that? Uh, oh, no, no. Before we get there, while we're talking about the sort of Wolves mm. area, let's talk about the Sheffield United area. All right. Those two being the sort of teams I was disappointed who didn't quite get into the uh, top four positions that they, they so very promised at certain points during this season. Sheffield United, who I've said before, were promoted at the same time as Norwich. Uh, they have suffered very different fortunes this season. They are the biggest surprise of the season. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. this is the team that people criticize Norwich saying, you know, they thought they could just survive on this championship team and, uh, you know, not bring in, not spend a lot of money and just survive on this sort of, you know, the tactics they used in the championship, which was this sort of gung ho attacking approach. They thought that would be enough in the Premier League. That's why they went down. Uh, guys, Sheffield United did the same thing. They've, mm-hmm. they've survived on what is initially a championship team. They've basically used the same philosophy that they used in the championship. And look where they ended up. It's, I can't quite articulate why this has happened but full credit to Chris Wilder full credit to this team who you know I think the stat I've got here they went from the middle of September to the middle of June only losing to one Premier League team that wasn't Liverpool or Man City how about that (laughs) that's that is not bad I think it also does then for me at least it again goes to the idea of long-term stability uh Chris Wilder is one of the longest tenured managers, like certainly not in the Premier League since it's his first season, but it's worth remembering he takes over Sheffield United when they're in League One. And I think institutes a lot of this philosophy and playing style around that same time period. So it's not as though that they have had to change it as they've had more success and more money. It's sort of the same stuff and a lot of the same players. Uh, They have been willing to spend the money when they need to. They dropped a decent amount, especially for a team coming out of the championship on, what, Sanderberger, uh, uh, Ollie McBurney, and Lise Mousset. Mousset, Mm. I'm sure is how you're supposed to pronounce that. But um, I think for those three players, like that shows how you can do it, is you keep the squad the same, you keep the core the same, you keep the philosophy the same, and you bring in the players that fit into it and will elevate those around them to the extent that they can. And I think... I think that's what Sheffield United have done. They haven't really deviated. They can change it up when they need to, but it's not as though they've gone to the Premier League and then said, all right, we're putting 10 behind the ball and hoping for a result. They have continued to sort of play their style. And I almost think that teams just haven't spent the time to figure them out yet. So they Hmm. continue to cause problems for teams. If they went on like a Leicester style run, I think more teams would try to really drill in and figure out exactly what they're doing and find ways to get around it. That's maybe a gross oversimplification, but for the variety and the way they've played, I think they've been pretty fascinating from start to finish. Definitely. And maybe that's an issue for next season. It start, teams will start figuring them out like teams kind of figured Leicester out a little bit a little after bit. their uh, mm-hmm. incredibleness. Should we uh, jump quickly to Norwich then? Yeah. As, I'm, as I did bring them up. Norwich. I would say my point, my takeaway is that they, their failure is kind of a warning shot for the teams who are coming up from the championship. In that great championship soccer does not equal great Premier League soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that Leeds and West Brom are coming up, and we know that Leeds, the, the, the narrative people are building is that Leeds have got Marcelo Bielsa, they can, they're made for the Premier League, they'll be back, they'll probably you know, stick it out and uh, you know, 
at least finish 16th, at least get that Brighton spot, that sweet Brighton spot. Uh, West Brom coming up. I think a lot of people think they'll go straight back down again, which isn't an unfair assessment. And then you've got these other teams. Uh, Cardiff and Fulham are actually playing as we record, which mm-hmm. dates our recording. I apologise for that. Um, we've got Brentford and Swansea in the other championship playoff. And a lot of goodwill towards Brentford, who kind of messed up in their attempt to get automatically qualified uh, for the Premier League. And they're one of those teams that people say, oh, they play, they play such lovely, lovely style. They are wonderful to watch. And then you think, yeah, that doesn't always mean they're going to be great in the Premier League. So that's, that's, my, that's my takeaway here, that you, just because you look good coming up doesn't mean you're going to be all set for the season ahead in the Premier League. I'm glad we're having this conversation having just talked about Sheffield United because that is the strange conundrum, right? Of, like, you can't just come up and expect to like play the way you play to the championship and find success because, like, on the one hand, we have Fulham, who tried to do that and it didn't work, and then on the other, you have Sheffield United, and it did. And I think maybe the difference there, not saying that you're, like, discrediting that, but I think for me, the way I understood it is that if you have a specific style that everybody is bought into and I think is nuanced enough that it gives you flexibility to survive, that is one approach versus Fulham coming up and thinking, no one has ever just tried to spend a bunch of money and play the best soccer right out of the gate. (laughs) Like, yeah, no, teams have done that, and it doesn't really work. I think if you're not going to go with a sort of unique, developed overtime approach, but instead of you're parachuting in a manager and dropping a bunch of money and you have a few talented players that elevate you such that you do get that promotion – that certainly does not guarantee that you're going to then have success the following season. You do either have to spend a little bit of money or be content with potentially getting relegated unless you've got a specific style. That's kind of where I am with it. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with that. Yeah. All right. And um, maybe I'll quickly move on to my other point about relegation. Here's a fun sure. stat for you. All the teams who came up in 2014-15 went down this season. Uh, one of them got five years longer than the others. Um, <laughs> now, Watford... Uh-huh. Uh, interesting case here because, you know, they, they had four managers. They paid for it in the end. Maybe they even paid for it with that last uh, ditch sacking of Nigel Pearce. And I'm not saying he would have got points against Arsenal and well, it was Man City, wasn't it, in the last couple of games. But might have had a better chance of getting things done. Uh, this is a team who have been in the relegation zone for 27 of the 38 weeks. But they just look like they, when they had Javi Garcia at the start, and they had uh, Ismail Issar coming in and looking really good and still looking really good. Uh, they had promise there, but they he got uh, canned pretty quickly after going on a winless streak, not unlike the Rav Hasenhutl streak at the start of the season as well. So maybe there was lessons to be learned there. I'm just a bit disappointed they went down because would I have rather seen West Ham go down instead? I think I would. I think I'd rather have seen West Ham go down again. I have no strong opinion one way or the other because West Ham seem like this is what they do. They have talented players. They've got a decent enough squad. They've got an established manager, and yet they always flirt with relegation. So I know what you mean that, like, would it have been the worst thing for them to go in Watford's day? I don't know if it's that dissimilar. I do know that I would absolutely read a book about Watford, like, a couple years from now about this time (laughs) period because, like, I forgot Javi Gracia. I forgot Marco Silva, for example, and I, I, I feel like there is some timeline where they either let him go immediately and were able to immediately replace him, and now they're challenging for the Euro 
Europa League in one timeline. There's probably another one where they never let him go, held on to him, and now maybe they're already playing in the championship. Who knows? But I think there's just such a strange situation with how many managers have been through, with how many players have kind of cycled through as well. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would enjoy reading more about what has happened to Watford and how they found themselves in the position they're in. It still does seem a little bit strange with what you said about how long they've been there that they will be going down, but it is a thing we've seen before. I wouldn't be surprised if we see them back up. I would be surprised if they're able to hang on to several of their players because I do think that's a team that should be in the Premier League with the talent they have. I think they'll be in the championship next season without a lot of that same talent. And I think I'll qualify what I said there. Apologies to West Ham fans listening. I I probably would. I think I've enjoyed watching Watford more than I've enjoyed watching mm. watching West Ham this season. Maybe that's the fairest way to put it. Yeah. The the David Moyes like pound for pound, player for player. What West Ham probably have a better squad, just about probably right. Yeah. But it's that David Moyes playing style, if you can call it that. You know, not worrying about possession, just this sort of smash and grab. Uh, you know, no plan B, uh, Arsene Wenger style, don't bring anyone on until the 75th minute. Uh, it's, I don't know, i just not a big fan of it. I don't want to watch another season of it. Sorry. <laughs> All right, well, you will have to watch another season of West Ham. You will not get to watch another season of Bournemouth in the Premier League, at least not next season. They go down, and one of my takeaways is that uh, Eddie Howe is the new Roberto Martinez. I don't know if he will get a move to another Premier League team or another big opportunity right away, but... I I struggle to think of a time, aside from when Wigan went down and I believe won the FA Cup in the same season, that a team has gotten relegated and the sort of narrative around them has mostly been like, yeah, but he's doing his best. Like, there there haven't really, as far as I know, been any determined long-form calls for Eddie Howe to step down or for them to part ways and bring in somebody else. There hasn't been a lot of, like, he's getting it wrong, there's like revolt at Bournemouth or anything like that. It seems like more or less because of the success he's had with Bournemouth having the budget they've had, it has been a, like, he's earned, he's built up that good faith and credit so that now in the season they do get relegated, it's just been like, yeah, but he's been punching above his weight for a really, really long time. I'm excited to see what happens next. Uh, Though I think he himself has been pretty stressed out this whole season. Maybe Maybe they uh, enjoy a season of the championship and come right back up. Maybe he does get an opportunity with another team. But I just found myself at the end of the day yesterday thinking, like, I personally have not seen a lot written about, like, what's happening with Bournemouth? Why has Eddie Howe gotten it wrong? Is he the right man? Is he the man we all thought he was? We're not getting those talking points the way I think we normally would with a lot of other teams. Maybe that's because he's English. That might also be a big part of it. But uh, I've been surprised by the lack of frustration and negativity towards a manager whose team was relegated. Maybe it's because they're, and I use this phrase lightly, a small market team. Maybe they've not, yeah. not got a huge fan base. And uh, there has been a lot of goodwill behind Eddie Howe. Of course, he was linked for many a year and probably still is with the England job, although mm-hmm. Gareth Southgate's got that on lock at the moment, undoubtedly. World Cup semi-finalist, thank you very much. Um, but but yeah, Eddie Howe, I, I kind of put him in that Chris Wilder boat and got a lot of goodwill from taking, taking this team through the ranks, albeit that Bournemouth had a pretty, big transfer budget mm-hmm. to get them there yep. and if you look at his missteps maybe it's in the in the market like jordan ibe yeah transfers like that do, doing very little and not spending too wisely and the, it's a shame and it, it, you could see that this season took its toll on eddie howe and you could see how upset he was uh on on the final day and how he sort of says he has to sort of make a decision about his future He's one of those ones you don't want to be sad. I don't want you to be sad at Howe. Exactly. Sad at that's that's what I mean. Is like he's he's so like he seems so sweet. <laughs> he seems so like a like a good manager that 
like it is almost this like oh I'd write something negative about them getting relegated, but I don't want to make him sad. He doesn't deserve that. So it's just it has been interesting the way Bournemouth have been covered. But I think you're right. It is probably also the benefit of being a smaller market club. You're not going to get a lot of that spotlight the way you would if say Nuno had Wolves struggling to survive. I think there'd be a little bit more coverage there. Uh, I have one more thing I would like to talk about that I will forever remember this season for. Ryan, what else have you got before we bring it to a close? Uh, I've got only one more as well. Uh, I want to talk about my player of the season. Okay. Marcus Rashford. Kevin De Bruyne? Ah. Not Kevin De Bruyne. No KDB, no VVD around here. It's Marcus Mm. Rashford all the way. And I don't mean it's because he's been the most outstanding player on the field. It's quite the opposite. Because Marcus Rashford is a hero. Mm. He's a hero, Taylor. Uh, for the little bit of context, during the pandemic, uh, Marcus Rashford's a, a person who grew up as a, a one of five children to a single mother in a Manchester suburb. Uh, there was a government move in the UK to take away sort of uh, free school meals for children during the pandemic. Uh, 1.3 million underprivileged kids disaffected. And basically, Marcus Rashford wrote an open letter to the UK government in which he sort of pleaded with them and this make the U-turn hashtag sort of trended on Twitter as well after he did it. He embarrassed Boris Johnson. He embarrassed the British government into doing a U-turn into bringing these meals back for these underprivileged kids. And this is a, Marcus Rash is also a player who's uh, joined a charity called Fair Share. They've raised more than 20 million pounds to help provide 3 million meals for vulnerable people as well. We talk about heroes in this game, Taylor, but... Marcus Rashford was an actual hero. None of what we talk about on this show, none of this game matters really. What he's done matters. And I just think he's, he's absolutely my hero for this season. And that's my whole takeaway from this season. I mean, I'm happy to let you continue to talk about how great Marcus Rashford is. That's fine <laughs> with me. I will do. You know, this is this is a context where Matt Hancock, who's like the health minister in the UK, who's been handling the pandemic and stuff, he took a swing at footballers, uh, soccer players, not mm. so long ago, saying, you know, maybe they should all take pay cuts. And th- and you've got Rashford doing a better job of running the government than he does, basically. Yeah. And yeah. all the people in Parliament, he's, Rashford's done effective more social change in some ways than he does. And you put this in the context, we met some Mesut Ozil earlier, getting his 350 grand and doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Look what, Mar- I mean, what Marcus Rashford's doing. Incredible. I always get a little apprehensive when it comes to these, like, like, certainly we haven't had an experience like Marcus Rashford before, at least that I can remember. I always get nervous because I always assume that there is more to the story that, like, for as much as you're about to, like, praise Marcus Rashford for being this wonderful humanitarian, you never know what follows next. Ryan Giggs has scarred me, is I guess what I'm saying. <laughs> but I doubt Marcus Rashford is Ryan Giggs. What I will say is that, like, it was an amazing story and one that was pretty shocking that he was able to sort of guilt the British government into changing policy. But it's also sort of in line with who he has been from start to finish. He's always been, I would argue, pretty humble. He's always been pretty honest in his answers about like, no, I'm not going out partying. I've got an exam tomorrow when he makes his debut. But even like there's tons of stories uh, on the Man United Reddit page you can find of him visiting sick kids in the hospital about providing funding for kids for school and after school after school programs. And he seems very engaged on and off the field, I'll say. So, no, I, I enjoy... Yeah. Everything Marcus Rashford does, again, on and off the field, and I think he is a good reminder for what the importance of football and footballers can be uh, this season especially. And on that very serious note, let's talk Jesse Lingard, shall we? (laughs) Natural jumping off point. I love it. 
I mean, you know, Man United connection. Uh, I just have to point out this one because it is a thing that I really will. If we're talking about our takeaways from the season, things that we will remember. The Jesse Lingard wager. I mentioned this on yesterday's show. I will mention it again uh, for people who have not seen it. Uh, a Twitter, Anth- Anthony Johnson, uh, fat underscore Tony 88. I'm guessing he was born in 1988. Made a wager at the start of the season. Um, or I think, yeah, uh, at the start of the season, with Jesse Lingard would not score or assist at all this year. <laughs> uh, at the time, two games had happened and he was feeling confident. 36 down, or excuse me, 36 down, two to go is what he tweeted recently. Um, and that would have been a three pound wager that would have paid off 135 pounds. And then Jesse Lingard scores the last goal for Manchester United in the 92nd minute in injury time. And that's that wager done and dusted. But just the idea that Jesse Lingard, uh, promoted that level, uh, like brought about that level of coverage and interest, uh, cracked me up on the final day at a time when there are many sad stories and it's always sad when the season ends. But that just felt like a hilarious note to end on for me. Yeah. Isn't that nice? The moral of the story is never bet on anything. Exactly. That really is the story. Unless you're (laughs) betting on Marcus Rashford to be wonderful and never, ever change that. Uh, I feel like I should knock on wood, but I won't. What I will do, Ryan, is say that I appreciate you taking a very long time to break down some of the takeaways from this past Premier League season. I'm sure we'll have more to discuss because we've got another season right around the corner. But for now, thank you very much for taking all the time to talk so many teams from the 2019-2020 Premier League season. Taylor, we went long, but it's always a pleasure, never a chore.